So hey, my name's Mitchell. I uh, have been a part of ICC here for several years, um, and I've had the privilege of being on staff here for a year and a few months. I get to lead our student ministry. It's such a gift, such a joy, and I'm just really pumped, honestly, uh, to be here this morning. A little nervous, but mostly pumped uh, to lead us uh, in the Word this morning as we seek to hear from God together, okay? So we're just going to jump right in. Hopefully you've been with us through our uh, series, Jesus is Better, is what it's called. We've been studying the book of Hebrews, and that really is kind of the theme of the book of Hebrews. The, the writer of Hebrews, we're not sh- sure exactly who it was, so that's what we're going to call him today. The writer of Hebrews uh, has this burden and this passion to prove to his r- readers that Jesus really is better. So we've been doing some review every week talking about the fact that Hebrews is a book of evaluation. We see the word better 13 times and the word perfect used 14 times. So not only is Jesus superior, as in better than others, but even he's, he's supreme, like he's perfect. There's no fault in him. And ultimately, he's eternal. He's unchanging. Hebrews 13.8 says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So like that first song we just sang, he doesn't change. He stays the way he is. And that's amazing because that's not true of anyone else. Okay, that's part of why he's better. We've also talked a little bit about sort of just the overall structure and flow of the book. So the first few chapters are focused on uh, the, the better person of Jesus, okay, just in who he is. And then right now we're in this middle chunk. It's really the, the majority of the book. Um, is focused on the better priesthood of Jesus. You may have noticed that. Uh, the writer's very serious about making sure we are aware that Jesus is a better priest as a representative and mediator between us and God. It's a really big deal because it's how we relate to God. And for his Jewish background readers, uh, Jews who have become Christians, it's very important that they see the difference between their existing priesthood and Jesus' priesthood, and they see that his is superior. And then uh, the end of the book is focused on the better life we can have with Jesus, the better life that he offers. Okay, so this week we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 8. Okay, before we get there, I want to ask you a question. We're going to have an honest moment, okay? I'm going to ask you a very personal question, and you can answer within yourself, and you can start thinking about this and why this is important and relevant for us. Here's my question. Have you ever struggled with insecurity in relationships? Okay, I think the answer is probably yes. It is for me, and I would imagine for most, if not all of us, we experience insecurity in relationships sometimes. And this can show up in different ways, right? So it may be um, a difficulty trusting people. It might be a fear of commitment. It may be that we uh, pull away and we isolate ourselves. It may be that we find ourselves comparing to others. It may be... Um, that we uh, carry that it, not just in our, our relationships with people, but even with God, that we're, we're uh, always nervous about uh, how he feels about us, and maybe we tend towards uh, people-pleasing when it comes to people. So there are a lot of different ways this can look is what I'm saying, but I would imagine the answer for most, if not all of us, is yes. And the truth is that we all long for commitment and security in relationships, Okay. Like, that's just deep down in our hearts, and that's not wrong that we long for that. The problem is that no earthly relationship can really give us that. Even the best earthly relationship falls short in some way, leaving us insecure. And so the question is, what about God? Like, can we be secure in our relationship 
with him? Can we find real, true security in him to meet these deep longings in our hearts, these things that we all long for? Security, confidence, freedom. We all long for these things deep in our hearts, and that's not a bad thing. And the, and the, the good thing is that God's word speaks directly to this. God has something to say to us about this today, and that's what we're talking about today is uh, this better covenant that Jesus offers. That's the title of today's message, Better Covenant. So thanks, Will, for reading our passage for us this morning. We're going to dive right in. First, I want to give you our core truth for the day. It's very simple. It's a really simple statement. I'd encourage you to write it down, put it in your phone, whatever works best for you. Here's our core truth for today. As our true eternal priest, Jesus mediates a better covenant enacted on better promises. So you kind of see three parts to this, and I'm going to explain that. As our true eternal priest, Jesus mediates a better covenant enacted on better promises. Okay? Now, we're we're building this on a verse kind of right in the middle of this passage, verse 6. So it will kind of serve as our theme verse for today. Here's what it says. But as it is... Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So you can sort of see those three points right here. We're talking about Jesus' ministry, his covenant, and his promises. And they work together and they build on each other to prove even further that Jesus is a better priest. Okay? So these three points are reflected in kind of the basic uh, message structure we're going to be using today. These are the three main points we're going to be walking through. Uh, You don't have to write them all down right now. We're going to come back to this each time. So I would recommend maybe just writing the first one. And then you can fill in underneath that. So um, the three main points for today is that uh, Jesus replaces shadows with reality. Jesus mediates a better covenant. And Jesus enacts better promises. Okay, so we're just going to take it one piece at a time and see where we're getting this in the passage. So, number one, Jesus replaces shadows with reality. Okay, so what do we mean by that and where are we getting that? Okay, let's look at starting in verse 1 of the passage that Will read for us. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the point of what we're saying is this. Okay, so if you're like me, if you're like a simple person like me, you love it when someone says this. Here's the point. Okay, because if you were with us last week, we were in chapter 7, and man, it was really good. But we got into some deep, like, details and some, some very, like, dense explanation of Jesus' priesthood. And so if you're anything like me, sometimes you can get a little lost and uh, sort of uh, lost in the weeds, maybe, is the way you could say it. And the, the writer of Hebrews is sort of, like, grabbing your shoulders, and he's like, hey, here's the main point. Okay, if some of that confused you, if you got a little lost... No worries. Here's the main point. Here's, here's what we're saying. We have such a high priest. Okay, so he's basically saying, we have this great high priest. He's real. His name's Jesus. This is not just an idea. This is not just conceptual. This is real. Jesus really exists, and he really is better than any other priest in every way. How? Well, he expounds on that. He says, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So he starts by focusing on the location of Jesus' ministry. And actually, this is really an important theme in these first five verses, and actually in uh, chapter 9 as well, that we'll cover next week. The location of Jesus' ministry is better. How? Well, he's comparing and contrasting. Okay, so he's saying, 
earthly priests, they do their ministry in a man-made physical building, okay, called the temple that was located in Jerusalem at this time, okay? Before that, it would have been the tabernacle, okay? On the other hand, Jesus does his ministry where? In heaven, in God's actual presence, actually seated at his right hand, in the, the, the true holy place. So even in the location of his ministry, Jesus is a better priest. So he continues in verse 3. He says, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. So there are some things that are similar between the earthly priest and the, our heavenly priest, Jesus. But here's what he says. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. So he's basically saying if, if Jesus were still on earth, he actually wouldn't be a priest by, by earthly qualifications. Why? Well, because if you remember from the Old Testament, the priests came out of a certain tribe of Israel, the tribe of Levi. Okay, Jesus was from a different tribe. He was from the tribe of Judah. So actually, by earthly standards, he wouldn't qualify as a priest. <laughs> but how much better is his ministry in heaven. Okay, while yes, the the earthly priests are real in a sense, Jesus and his priesthood are the greater reality. Okay? He is the reality that replaces the shadows, and that's what we get at in verse 5. It's kind of uh, the the main point of uh, of this. It says, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. So they, the earthly priests, the the priesthood, that system of worship and relating to God. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Okay, so these words, copy and shadow, why are we using these words? I'll I'll give you some ways to think about it. There are several different ways you could think about this, but here are a few that might help, some illustrations. So when you hear the word copy, so this word really means kind of like a, a replica, a replication, so something that's been recreated. So you could think like a... uh, a model. I don't know. So you might know someone who uh, builds like model cars or trains or airplanes or something like that. Okay. What's the purpose of that model? Its only purpose is to represent something greater than itself, right? Which is the actual thing, the actual car, plane, train, whatever. Planes, trains, automobiles. That's what I'm just thinking about. Um, so th- that's the only purpose is to point to something greater. Okay. In the same way, a shadow. Where does a shadow come from? A shadow, uh, we see a shadow when you shine light on an object, okay, it casts a shadow, it projects this shadow, but that shadow is not the object. So if it were a person, okay, let's say someone you know, you see their shadow, that's not them at all. It's a vague representation of them. You don't get any details. You can't see their face. You can't see their features. You probably won't even recognize them unless you know them really well, okay? And you would never like interact with someone's shadow. That isn't, yeah, that would be weird and awkward. So you, the, the shadow simply points to the fact that there's a, there's a true reality that exists. The shadow is evidence of that, okay? In the same way, this earthly priesthood points to a greater reality, which is the heavenly things. Jesus' heavenly priesthood, he, he gives a little more detail here. He says, for when Moses was about to erect a tent, he was instructed by God. Okay, so we're talking about Moses leading the people of Israel in the wilderness. We'll come back to this later. But God gives him 
very detailed instructions for building this tabernacle, this portable tent. It'll be their place of worship, okay? He gives very detailed instructions. If you've ever read it, it's kind of hard to read because it's like, I mean, dimensions of every single thing, okay? And he's saying, this is a quote from Exodus 25, verse 40. See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. That's God speaking to Moses. He's saying, do exactly what I tell you, okay? Because this is not random. He's not just throwing stuff out. God's not just like, give this a try, you know? The, the very tabernacle, the construction of the tabernacle pointed to a greater reality, which is the heavenly tabernacle, which is God's presence, which is where Jesus does his ministry. Okay, I hope this is making sense. Here's one more illustration just to help you kind of grasp this, uh, the difference between shadows and substance. Okay, shadows point to the substance. That's what we're saying, that Jesus is the substance. All these other practices and systems and even people like the priests were shadows of him. So uh, my, my parents right now are building a house. They're building a new house out in the country down in Alabama, and they're excited about it. And I'm excited about it. And last time we visited, they were showing us like the plans, like the blueprints of this house. They've got them laid out. And they've been so involved in every single detail, all these little decisions they've had to make about how to have this house built. Uh, but then they said, well, we want to take you to go see it. And it was just a foundation and some, some walls at the time. But, but th- there was this realization that this paper, the sheet of paper can only do so much for my understanding of what this house is going to be like. We went and we saw the actual house. And here in a few months, they'll be moving in. And I'll be excited to come visit after they move, after all the work is done. I can come visit, okay? And when I get there, they're not going to walk outside and start flipping through the blueprints and be like, so here's the, here's the kitchen and here's this bedroom and bathroom. They're going to they're gonna walk me in the house and give me the tour of the house because the house exists Who needs to look at the plans when the house exists? In the same way, the the writer of Hebrews, he's taking his readers by the hand, his Jewish background believers, and he's saying, guys, yes, this this priesthood system is, is good, okay? It's a good thing, but it's only a shadow. It's just the blueprint, okay? But now the substance, the reality who is Jesus has come, and when... The, the, the substance appears, the shadows disappear. Okay, and he's saying, let's move on from shadows to the substance. Don't get stuck there. Okay, and the same is true for us. Okay, we may not get caught up in, we don't have priests and a temple and things like that, okay? But I, I think for many of us, especially depending on the background we have, if, if, if you grew up in a, in a certain kind of culture, Christian culture, church culture, you may have a tendency, we may have a tendency to put more emphasis at times on practices or disciplines or even certain ministry activity than the substance, which is Jesus, knowing him, loving him, serving him. Okay, so the application is the same. May we never get caught up in shadows when all the shadows do is point to the substance, the reality. Okay, so this is our first point. Jesus replaces shadows with reality. And we're going to be focusing on this more next week, okay? So in chapter 9, we're going to get in even deeper with this, okay? If this is interesting to you, let that hook you uh, for next week, okay? Um, So then the the writer moves on into really what's kind of the meat of this 
uh, this passage. And that's this point that Jesus mediates a better covenant. Jesus mediates a better covenant. We're going to see that in the next uh, four verses, six through nine, and then also the very last verse of the chapter. Okay? So if you remember, so we just left off in verse five. Now in verse six, here's what he says. This is our theme verse, remember? But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old. So that's what we just talked about, his ministry. Why is his ministry so much better? As the covenant he mediates is better. And then why is the covenant better? Since it is enacted on better promises. That's what I was saying earlier. This builds uh, in, this, in this verse where these ideas are building on each other. So his ministry is better because his covenant is better. You may be asking this question. <laughs> what is a covenant? Like, I may have heard that word. You know, I've heard of Covenant College in Chattanooga. I don't know. You, you might be like, what does that mean? It kind of sounds scary. Well, it's not. But it is a really big deal. It's a weighty word. Certainly. And, and I, I want to talk a little bit, just briefly, about what a covenant is, okay, so we can lay some groundwork. Let's lay a foundation of what, what is a covenant. So here's the thing. Covenants are important to God. Uh, if you've read much of the Bible, you might have seen that. Uh, covenants are kind of the, the way that God has, has chosen to relate to his people. It's kind of the essence of God's relationship with his people. They really form kind of the backbone of the story of the Bible, okay, so it, it really is a big deal. We need to understand it. Um, generally speaking, just a, a basic definition of a covenant is that it's a, it's a partnership, okay, between two parties, okay, that willingly enter in and they agree to certain, like, terms, conditions uh, of this covenant and they, they agree to work together towards a common goal, a shared goal. But it, it, it's more than, like, a contract, like a deal, like, you do this, I do that. It's actually a very, like, personal relationship. It forms a, a, a personal, lasting relationship. And, and it's, be, it's built on, like, commitments and promises, okay? Saying, I will do this. I will be this for you, okay? Uh, and covenants are not intended to be broken. Like, they're, they're meant to be durable, reliable, um, and, and lasting, so probably the clearest example we have is that of marriage, okay? So if you go to weddings very often, if you're like me, you go to at least one a month, uh, you go sit at a wedding, and uh, you, you, you're watching what's happening, and, and, and what's happening is a covenant is being formed, okay? So a man and a woman are, are standing there with a mediator, basically, and they're forming a covenant, and they're making vows, which are commitments and promises to the other. And it's meant to be lasting, lifelong even. Now, of course, we all have um, uh, broken experiences with marriage and family in our lives. And I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to oversimplify, but what I am saying is that God intends for marriage to be a, a covenant. That's what it is. And it's actually intended to point to a greater covenant that we're talking about today. That's what Ephesians 5 teaches us, okay? So the, we see covenants all throughout Scripture, okay? Um, a, a few to highlight. So the, the Bible essentially begins with a covenant. Genesis chapter 1, God creates Adam and Eve, the first two people in his image, places them in this garden, uh, and he blesses them and he commissions them, and he invites them to partner with him. 
as representatives and stewards and cultivators of the earth. Okay? A few chapters later in Genesis, after God has flooded the earth, he makes a covenant with a man named Noah and his family. He promises not to flood the earth again. And he kind of invites him into the same kind of partnership to fill the earth again, kind of start fresh, um, and to, to rule the earth. A few chapters later in Genesis chapter 12 is the first time we see uh, God initiate a, a specific covenant with a specific uh, person, a man named Abraham and his family. We sort of see God's redemptive story start to take shape in that because he makes huge promises. He promises him offspring and land. And he says actually that he's going to bless the whole world through his family. And he invites Abraham to walk in faith and obedience to him. Okay? And this, kind of, this sort of culminates in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. So God leads, it's what we are talking about earlier in verse 5. God leads the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and uh, into the wilderness. And he meets with a man named Moses who he's chosen to be uh, his, kind of the leader of the people of Israel. And he makes a covenant with them. He says, I'm going to set you apart. I've chosen you as my people. I'm going to make you holy. And here's what I, what I want you to do is I want you to follow these laws. And he gives them extensive laws you may be familiar with the Ten Commandments that kind of summarize these laws, but there are many more. He gives them laws for how he wants them to live as his people. So this is the Old Covenant. This is the First Covenant. So when we're reading in Hebrews and we're comparing to the Old Covenant, that's what we're talking about. Because it's sort of, it's sort of the culmination of God's covenant with his people uh, Israel in the Old Testament. And it's, it's what these Jewish background believers who are reading Hebrews would have been coming from. It's what they've been living under for generations, okay, is the old covenant, this way of relating to God. And the people say, we will, we will, live, we will live by these commandments. We will live by your law. The problem is that they, they didn't. If you've ever read the Old Testament, they just didn't. Uh, by and large, they, they didn't. And so that's, that's why, so in verse 7, we're moving on in, in our passage, in verse 7, uh, the writer says, for if that first covenant we were just talking about had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So he's using really simple logic here. He's like, why would we be talking about a second covenant if the first one worked, right? If the first one was faultless, why would we be introducing a new one? Okay, well, what was wrong with the first covenant? What was the fault? Well, look at verse 8. He says, for he, referring to God, Finds fault with them. With who? With them, with the people. Okay? The problem with the first covenant was not God, it was the people. The first covenant was meant for good. Okay? It was, it was given for blessing. If the people would have obeyed, they would have experienced God's blessing. So it wasn't pointless. It wasn't purposeless. It was, it was intentional. Uh, but because of the people's disobedience... Their external disobedience that it evidenced internal um, brokenness. Their hearts were messed up, so they did not obey. And they, they suffer the consequences. I mean, they, they experience God's discipline and even punishment for their sin because they broke the covenant over and over and over again. And it leads them eventually into exile. They're taken into captivity by their enemies. And so... This quote right here, you see there, there are quotes uh, 
It's from Jeremiah chapter 31. So Jeremiah, an Old Testament prophet, uh, Jeremiah wrote uh, kind of right on the precipice of the darkest point in Israel's history, which was the Babylonian exile. And he's warning them about what's coming, and he's prophesying about what is to come. Here's what he says. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Remember, the old covenant with Moses. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. God is saying, you broke my covenant. Okay, so I allowed you what you chose. I allowed you to experience the consequences of what you chose. You chose to walk away from me, to reject me, to turn your back on me. So you experienced the consequences of that. But he's saying, on top of that, even before that, he's saying, uh, but it won't always be this way. Like, there's a new covenant coming. The days are coming when I'm going to establish a new way of relating to me, and it's going to be different. It's not going to be like that old one. Okay? It's going to be different. Not only different, but better. Okay? The last verse in this chapter, verse 13, says, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. He's sort of concluding this thought. What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So he's saying as we're introducing this new covenant, the other one becomes obsolete. Now when you hear obsolete, don't think, again, uh, pointless. But no longer useful. Okay, it's outdated. It's being overridden by the new one. In light of this new covenant, the old one is passing away. It's worn out. It's done, it's done its work. The new one is taking its place. Okay? And this new covenant is what, is what Jesus came to mediate. And Jesus knew this. I mean, even he spoke to this. Uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 20, he's at the Last Supper with his disciples shortly before his death. He says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus was aware, like this was what he came to do, was to establish this new covenant between God and his people, okay? So Jesus mediates a better covenant. What makes it so much better? Remember verse 6, it's because it's built on better promises, Jesus enacts better promises, okay? And this is where it gets really good, really exciting, okay? Really moving for me and hopefully for you. So uh, Jeremiah, this quote from Jeremiah, God has, has introduced this covenant, and now he's going to get into some of the details about this is what it's going to be like, okay? Kind of the terms, the conditions of this, this covenant. Here's what it's going to be like. Okay, and he gives us three main promises we're going we're gonna to look at. Okay? So here's what he says, verse 10, picking up where we left off. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Declares the Lord. This is what it's going to be like. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. So the first promise we're given in this new covenant is the promise of internal change. Internal change. Okay, do you remember what we just talked about. What was the problem with the old covenant? The problem was not with God. The problem was with the people. And what was the problem with the people? Yes, it was their disobedience. But even deeper than that, it was their hearts. I mean, over and over again, if you read the Old Testament, you see people who just go astray over and over and over again. They're, 
their, their default mode of operation is to go find idols, to, to worship other gods, to disobey, to live for themselves rather than for God. Does that sound familiar? It's, 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 where, it's what we all tend towards as people. We are broken people. Okay? So God says, okay, I'll change your hearts. <laughs> he says, I'll, uh, I'll put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. So the old covenant, he had Moses write the laws on stone tablets. He says, this time I'll put them in you. I'll write them inside you. If your heart's the problem, I'll give you a new one. Ezekiel prophesied this. He'll, he'll take out our heart of stone, our hard hearts, and replace it with a heart of flesh. He gives us a very, uh, an, an actually new nature. I mean, in our very essence, he, he transforms us to where we actually want to obey him. We actually desire to please him. God has never just been after deeds. He wants our desires, Okay? And so God says, I'll go and I'll transform you from the inside out. And this is the work that the Holy Spirit does in all who enter this new covenant by faith in Jesus. Okay, Richard Foster has a really cool quote. Uh, he says, the contrast between God's way of doing things and our way is never more acute than in this area of heart change and transformation. He says, we tend, people... We tend to focus on specific actions, but God always focuses on us. We work from the outside in, but God works from the inside out. We try, but God transforms. It kind of takes us back to the shadows and reality conversation. We as people tend to get really caught up on external things, what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong what we're doing well and what we're maybe failing in, and we try to fix ourselves from the outside in. There's a whole industry called self-help built on that, and I'm not knocking that necessarily, but what I'm saying is that God's different, and he actually has the power to go inside of us and transform us from the inside out. See, the law, the old covenant, there were some things that it did really well, and it's what it was intended to do. It it set a standard of holiness and righteousness for God's people, right? And it, and it showed the contrast between a holy God and a sinful people. And it, and it showed people what living for God really should look like. But the problem was it didn't provide the power for people to actually do it because they were broken and sinful and just messed up, honestly. Okay? And again, hopefully you see this in yourself when left to your own devices. Okay, but God says in this new covenant, the first promise he makes right out the gate when he says this is what it's going to be like, he says, I'm going to come in and I'm going to change you from the inside out. So we have the promise of internal change. Okay, then he continues, he says, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Continuing in verse 11, he says, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Okay, so this next promise we see of this new covenant is the promise of personal relationship. Personal relationship. This is kind of what it's all about, honestly. This is what God has always been after. Okay, this phrase that he uses here at the end of verse 10, when he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. It's what God has always been after. 
It's like a theme, like a mantra almost that he repeats when he's giving prophecies and when he's even giving covenants. He says, I, I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. Like I want, I want relationship. That's what God has always been after is relationship with his people. Okay, and, but he, he actually moves on. He, he, he shows us that this is not just a corporate relationship like God and people, but he moves on in verse 11. And he says, they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. He says, you, don't, you no longer have to go through somebody else. There's no longer this hierarchy. You have to go through somebody else to know the Lord. It doesn't mean we can't teach. But what he's saying is no, one, no one's going to have to, have to um, be your mediator anymore. The, the earthly priests. That's probably what he's referring to here. The religious leaders. Saying you don't need that anymore. You can know me. Like you have personal access to me now. Personal relationship. This is the greatest gift like God could ever give. Is to give personal relationship with himself. Give us access. If you remember when Jesus died on the cross, uh, the veil in the temple was torn. The, the, this curtain that separated the, the holy place from the most holy place where God's presence dwelled. Right, most uh, in the most concentrated way, God's presence was there, and you you couldn't go in there. I mean, only certain people at certain times could go in there. High priests, representatives, and when Jesus died, the the curtain literally tore, illustrating like this access that's been opened for all. We saw this earlier in chapter four of Hebrews, at the end of chapter four, verse sixteen. We can approach God's throne with confidence. Okay, so we're given access to personal relationship with Him. So maybe you're asking, how can this be, right? Like, I mean, we were just talking about how bad people are, right? How broken people are. How can sinful people be in relationship with a holy God? We're in our, in our depths. We're, we're just like the, the people of the, the Old Testament, people of the Old Covenant, right? We're, we're no more equipped on our own to obey God than they were. Some people might even say we're worse. I don't know. Okay, but the point is, how is this going to happen? And he answers in verse 12. He says, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So the, the only way for sinful people to be in relationship with a holy God is for their sins to be dealt with. Sin is what separates us from God and leads us to death apart from him. The only way is for sin to be dealt with, and God did it. He says, I, I, I will do this. Jeremiah chapter 31, he's already decided, I'm going to do this. I'm going to deal with their sin. Okay, that's, sorry, that's the third promise. I got carried away. That's our third promise, is the promise of for, forgiveness of sins. Okay, this is what Jesus came to do, okay? When he said, when he's sitting there with his disciples, and he says, this wine in this cup, it represents my blood, that I'm shedding for the, this new covenant. This is what I'm doing. I'm making a way for you to enter this new covenant, this relationship with God. This is the gospel. This is what Jesus came to do. He, he came and he lived for our righteousness. So he actually obeyed the law. The only person to ever do that. He actually obeyed the law to the T. Every letter of the law he obeyed perfectly. So he didn't deserve death. Okay, remember, the law says that sin brings death. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Jesus didn't deserve death. 
That's why he says, this is the new covenant. I'm going to die, and when I'm dying, I'm dying for you and for everyone who will ever enter this new covenant. Okay? He died as a sacrifice and a substitute for sin, to pay the penalty for, for sin all time for everyone who enters this new covenant. Then he rose to new life, uh, showing his victory and his uh, proving his, his, all the promises and the claims he ever made and guaranteeing our future resurrection for those in this new covenant, our future resurrection to eternal life. This is how God can say, I'm giving you a new covenant. I'm going to change you. I'm going to have personal relationship with you. This is how. This is how. And guys, this, like, this is what it's all about. I mean, this covenant is a covenant of pure grace. Hopefully you've seen that. Hopefully you're observing that. As we read through this passage over and over again, the phrase you hear is, I will. I will. I will. Six times in this quote from Jeremiah, God says, I will. The old covenant was based on the people's commitment to be obedient to God. They said, we will do all these things. Okay. The new covenant is built on God's faithful commitment to his people. He says, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll not only initiate this covenant, but I'll do everything necessary for you to enter it. The only thing left for you to do, I don't know if you noticed this, the only thing that Jeremiah says the people will do is he says, they shall be my people and they shall all know me. <laughs> okay, so the, the work to enter this new covenant of grace is, is faith, is believing the promises submitting to God and his, his lordship, trusting in Jesus and living to know him. Like, that's what it means to, to enter into the new covenant, is to come and receive, to leave the shadows and, and move to the reality, which is Jesus. And this is the, this is the, the foundation of the Christian faith. Honestly, I mean, this is, this is it is covenant relationship with a faithful and loving God. Remember earlier I was talking about all the covenants we see throughout Scripture. God has always desired relationship with his people. And the, the climax of all of history is what he's done through his son to make that possible. Jesus has completed the work as our mediator of this better covenant. He's completed the work for us to enter. And God never fails his covenant. At the, uh, in, in this chapter of Jeremiah, chapter 31, he continues um, after this quote. He continues and uh, he, he, he basically uh, explains his own faithfulness. And he basically equates his faithfulness with uh, the fixed order of nature like the sun, the moon, the stars. Essentially, he's saying, you know, if, if the sun forgets to rise tomorrow, then maybe I'll forget my promises, which means there's no chance. There's just no chance. Our God is faithful, and he keeps the covenants he makes. So that's why this is such good news. That's why these things matter for us today. Okay, so what I want I to lead you in here is, is as, we, as we kind of bring this full circle, okay, and we go back to the question we asked earlier. We said, well, what about God? 
Can we be secure in our relationship with him? And I hope you're seeing the resounding answer is yes. <laughs> it's a no-brainer. It's yes. Because it's God. God is not a man that he would lie, that he would fail, right? This is God. This is faithful God. Yes, we can be secure in our relationship with him. And these things that we long for, we said, don't we all long for these things? And hopefully you were sitting there with me and you're like, yes, I do. We can find these things in this covenant with our God. Like we can find security because we're forgiven, right? He said forgiveness of sins. That was, that was the promise. We can find confidence in personal relationship with him. That's the whole point. And we can find freedom as he transforms our hearts. We're no longer working to, to, to please him by our external behavior. We're no longer striving simply for, for behavior modification or, or moral uh, conformity. Sure, those things are good. And yes, the fruit of our lives should show what's happening inside of us. But ultimately, it's all owing to him. The transformation he does in us by his Holy Spirit and what freedom we can live in. So as our worship team kind of comes back up, I want to I wanna just, just lead you to, to reflect and respond to this better covenant. Like this is the main point. Remember what verse 1 said? What the author said in verse 1? This, this is the point of what we're saying, okay? Is that we have this high priest. He's real. He's got a better ministry. He mediates a better covenant and he gives better promises, this is the whole point. The question is, like, are you believing this? And are you living in this? Okay, so when we find ourselves drifting towards insecurity in, in whatever area of our lives, do you, do you know how to answer that with the truth of the covenant you're in? Like the security you have in Christ? Like, are you, are you actually, is this, is this, has this gone beyond your mind into your, your heart? Like, this is meant to be more than an idea, okay? If this is only a concept that you understand, it's going to do nothing for you. I can attest to that. <laughs> it's going to do nothing for you if it's just an idea, okay? But is it operational in your heart, like, are you, are you finding ways to remind yourself of the covenant you're in, the love that you've been given, unfailing love with a faithful God? Okay, that's the application for us today is moving beyond shadows to substance. What are your shadows? What are the things that you're kind of, you're stuck in? What are the things that uh, you're like holding on to or it has a hold on you? Let's move to the reality Jesus is real. I mean, I believe that. I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you've never entered this covenant before. Maybe you've never believed before. Remember, God said, I will. I'll do this. I'll, I'll do it. Okay? But we enter by faith. Repenting of sin, turning from our sin and turning to Jesus. Believing in what he's done on our behalf as our mediator of this better covenant with better promises. And maybe you're in this but you're, it's not working in your heart. It's, it feels distant. It feels like a distant idea. And my hope, my prayer, my challenge for you today is to seek, like, what would this look like for me to build this into my heart more, for me to plant this in my heart more, dig deeper in my heart, okay, that this might grow 
in me, this faith in my, the, the covenant I'm in with, with God. Jesus has done everything necessary for you today. He wants you to believe. He wants you to come and trust him. So let me just pray, uh, and then we'll sing. Lord, I thank you that you are a God who speaks, and uh, I hope, I believe that you've spoken to us today. You've spoken to me. Um, God, I ask that you would please like make our hearts soft and receptive and responsive to what you're speaking and what you're doing. God, help us. Like, help us to leave behind the shadows. Whatever we bring in, whatever kind of baggage we bring in to this, God, help us to leave that behind and cling to the substance, the reality who is Jesus. God, help us to find security in knowing that we are chosen, we are loved, like we are safe with you. We're never more safe than when we're with you. God, I pray that you would help us even as we respond in this time to just open our hearts, our work by your spirit, bring us into greater confidence in who you are, what you've done for us in the relationship we have with you, and let us just live out of that in every area of our lives. Thank you, Lord. Please do what you want to do in our lives today. Amen.